Yeah, that's the, the interdisciplinary program. If you yeah. want to, you can get away with just saying chemistry, because <laughs> that's the uh, the discipline within the interdisciplinary. Yeah, it, it, yeah it just depends on the contact rate. Right? <laughs> Just realizing that uh, one of the things I like about Seattle Pacific University is that I get to do research and I get to do teaching, probably do uh, quite a bit of each. Uh, research with undergraduates, that was my last ASA talk two years ago. This year I went to put on my teacher hat and I went to talk about one of the things that I've done with one of my courses in teaching. Now the inspiration for this and the reference in the title um, that you probably picked up on, Psalm 19, probably a lot of our favorite psalms and we're in good company. C.S. Lewis said it was also his favorite psalm. Uh, the great thing about Psalm 19 includes the day after day they pour forth speech. It tells an astronomical story in the first six verses and then it parallels that with the scriptural story about the Torah in the next, uh, in the next ten or so verses. And uh, this juxtaposition of these two stories just comes completely naturally to the psalm, and it fits into the poem. So uh, this shows to me that stories can be juxtaposed. So uh, with that in mind, I had a teaching assignment one year, changing teaching assignments, and I was given this course. If you look into uh, the catalog, you see this. And uh, this is the course I teach. I cover those topics. But if you ask me, what do you teach in that course? I wouldn't repeat this. 
if I were telling you what I ta taught in the course, I would say something along the lines of stories. The story of the chemistry of life, from how heat moves and how atoms form in stars. How heat moves is a little bit less scary than thermodynamics, but it's essentially the same thing. And so I found that as I teach, I teach in stories. Even when I'm talking about experiments, it's more engaging to the students if you tell it as a story. And of course, if you open up the Bible and read through it, you find a lot of stories there too. And so science and faith are both story-involving material. Um, each experiment is a story, and much of scripture is a story. So I want to sort of uh, juggle four different stories today. Uh, the four stories of creation, and actually a lot of these have, uh, are often talked about at this, uh, at this sort of meeting. The astronomical, the biological, the chemical, and the scriptural. Uh, the one that I don't think is talked about enough yet is the chemical. I think there's some very interesting things if you look at creation as a chemist. So I'm going to try to pull some of that out, and I'll describe what that is in a second. But of course, we're taking these scientific stories and we're comparing it to the scriptural stories that we have at the beginning of Genesis and also referred to throughout the Bible and other places. And so we've already had some exposure to the astronomical story today, and I just want to recommend a, um, a book that gave me a, a lot of astronomical stories. I'm not an astronomer, but um, I picked up this book, The Age of Wonder by Richard Holmes, and this is a really interesting book. It tells a lot of stories of the romantic generation and the intersection between art and science. For instance, uh, Sir Humphrey Davy was a poet. You can read some of his poetry in this book. But one of the stories that it tells is the astronomical story of William Herschel, who was first and foremost a technologist, I suppose, to refer to uh, the last talk. He built a new technology that allowed him to see things at a finer detail that no one could see before. And he employed that technology, the telescopes that he built, in the back streets of Bath, there's a whole nice uh, chapter on it in the book that I just recommended, uh, to scan for comets, things that move throughout the sky. Well, he found one candidate that was sort of blurry and it didn't really have a tail. And then he, as he observed it, he realized that's not a comet, that's another planet. Originally, he proposed that we call it the Georgian planet, but that didn't stick. Instead, we now call it Uranus. And the thing is, a lot of students, of course, accept that Uranus is a planet. You know, they don't, um, they don't write anguished letters home about, about the science professor who's trying to teach them about Uranus, even though it's not mentioned in the Bible or, or things like that. Um, this was a traumatic event in the faith and science world of the Romantic era. Uh, and it really defined his life. Uh, for instance, his epitaph is Chalem Parapet Claustra. He broke through the barriers of the heavens. What I love about this is, of course, it's an epitaph in a churchyard. And in that church, they have this stained glass window. If you, if you can see way down there on the corner, there's one of his telescopes. Stained glass in the church. A combination, a juxtaposition of the astronomical story in the context of the scriptural. So, of course, uh, when he discovered uh, not only Uranus, he also discovered nebulae. Uh, he discovered stars being born, and also by inference, stars dying. He discovered that things were very, very far away. Space was deep and time was deep. And of course, this immediately poses problems for a 624-hour period uh, creation interpretation of Genesis. Now, that was a challenge, but there was also a correlation. His observations also led to the conclusion, and this was mentioned in the previous talk, that there was a beginning because he observed the winding down of the universe. 
you uh, observe star death and star birth, you know, um, you begin to see that there's a, a creation story of stars. So the universe was not infinite, and we now extend that to the story of the Big Bang, which I think juxtaposes very well with uh, elements of the, creation, uh, of the creation account in Genesis. And I think that the best way to hold these things next to each other, whether it's the evidence of experiments or the challenges or the correlations, is through the story of his experiments and the impact that it had on the world around him. Uh, one of the ways that this is done is retracing the historical path and the misconceptions that people actually had before they did the experiment, and then you can talk about the data. So with that in mind, I'd like to tell you a little bit about a chemical story. Uh, it's the chemical story, probably better to, for me to say a chemical story. Uh, this is a book by R.J.P. Williams and J.J.R. Frausto da Silva uh, called The Chemistry of Evolution. And the idea is how did chemistry and biology interact over time? Uh, this is a summary statement from another article. It asserts that biological evolution was consequential upon geochemical environmental change and was inevitable, not accidental. And when you're thinking about protein folding, you shouldn't forget that there's also solvent around or else you don't understand the hydrophobic effect. Likewise, if you're thinking about evolution, you can't forget there's an environment around with elemental availabilities that may shape what happens. So one of the things about elemental availabilities is there's only so much of everything in the universe. We don't have a lot of uranium because it's so big, stars haven't been able to make very much of it yet. In fact, um, you can actually draw a line on an elemental availability of the universe graph like this. There's probably some error bars here. But uh, the, the general idea is you look above this line and you see a lot of things that life uses. You look below this line, you don't see very much that life uses. And perhaps you can even understand why we don't use beryllium that much because there wasn't that much of it made in the stars in, in the universe, at least uh, um, dispersed to where we could use it. So the idea is that the periodic table is already a limited situation, but it's limited even more by the availabilities of what you can, uh, of what you can find. Oh, one other thing is that you'll notice that even atomic numbers are, are made more than odd atomic numbers. You'll see the same pattern in life. Life uses what's there, not what's far away. Another piece that this story is built on, according to R.J.P. Williams, is, this, uh, is actually a second law of thermodynamics, a role for entropy. The way I like to explain this is as a radiometer. A radiometer takes in light, the black paddles heat up, and it turns in a cycle. So light comes in. Heat goes out, and you have the, uh, the cycle turning. Well, is that really so different from our situation? We have light coming in. It uh, is absorbed by plants. It, we eat the plants. There's a cycle. And what is emitted from that cycle? But heat. Now, the thing is, if you look at this uh, from a thermodynamic standpoint, you can argue that the sun's light is low in entropy, and the heat is high in entropy is more disordered, or I actually prefer to call it more spread out. Um, disordered has some problems with it. And if you have a faster turning life cycle that emits more heat and absorbs more light, you have more entropy being, uh, more photons being spread out into heat. So heat is produced from the second law. And another thing that's produced by life in this chemical story is oxygen. Uh, the reason for this is because all cells have to have uh, information inside them in the form of biopolymers, covalently bonded DNA, RNA. Uh, and the thing about these biopolymers is that oxygen is not very compatible with them. Reactive oxygen species will shatter them in many cases. 
uh, you also need electrons inside to build them. So the idea is this, that the electrons and the accompanying protons tend to stay inside cells while the oxygen is ejected. This helps the biopolymers survive and this helps the organism survive. So the idea is that organisms are reducing inside and the environment is oxidized. Another way to show this is just the idea of a very early uh, possible chemical reaction forming a biopolymer here on the left. The formation of the biopolymer has a chemical potential of negative 0.6 volts. The starting material, uh, oxidized carbon, has a starting potential of negative 0.2 volts. So you're going from negative 0.2 to negative 0.6. You, you are reducing that carbon. And the environment in which that is happening is the cell. Conversely, the outside is oxidized. And so with oxygen as our flag, uh, we, can look, we can look and see that oxygen has filled the atmosphere. And it's not really a straight line, but you can draw it as a straight line if you're R.J.P. Williams, I suppose, uh, throughout history. And so on the scale of billions of years, uh, and you, know, you can actually see the oxygen going up. This is actually, there's a lot of scatter in this line, of course. But uh, this is the same line with experimental evidence from uh, different geological sources. And it shows the same thing on the same logarithmic scale of oxygen increase. And so for combining 12 different ways of looking at things for things that old, I'm happy with that. I'm not a geologist. And the thing about oxidation is as the Earth was oxidized, it basically changed from a a redox potential of around zero to a redox potential of positive 0.8. And that changes any redox-sensitive equilibrium that comes along. So the idea is that you start off at a redox potential. Let's say you start off at a, at a redox potential of around here, around zero. And then you're changing to this positive 0.8. This is actually symmetric down the middle. Non-metals over here, metals over there, um, just to be able to separate out things so it's not entirely too confusing. But the idea is that as time goes on and oxidation increases, you move through those equilibria. For instance, you see down here the nitrogen or the ammonium line. The ammonium gets oxidized. It loses its hydrogen. Uh, hydrogen and the electrons go together to make N2. Sulfur uh, or dihydrogen sulfide becomes sulfate. And the metals likewise change over time. And the thing is that different metals are going to have different solubilities as well. And you have to be soluble to be available to life. Life tends to be based on water. We can't really avoid that too much. And so the idea is that uh, items are removed or added to the system over time so that you can make this very gross approximation. Early on, uh, there's a lot of sulfur. Life, the, the life that was dependent on the environment will be dependent on a lot of sulfur, nickel, iron, manganese, and co cobalt. Late you would have life that was dependent later on oxygen and copper and zinc come out more in an oxidized environment. Uh, now, actually, for these five elements, there are uh, genomic evidences for these. If you look back at, at structures, there's a couple of papers, and not just by one group, um, scattered about where uh, this sequence appears to hold if you do the, um, the prospecting in, in back in the genomes. Uh, the interesting thing about this is all of these are redox sensitive, but actually nickel is the exception. Nickel is not redox sensitive. So why am I telling you that it was there early uh, but not late? Well, there's other evidence for that. 
So the thing I want to tell you is that each of these, of course, the chemists love to talk about our elements. Each of these elements has a different personality um, once you've been through inorgan inorganic chemistry. And uh, I want to point out for nickel, the uh, act that it plays is as uh, hydrogen bonding and hydrogen moving. So the thing is that you could have a world that was depending on moving carbon around in oxidation state, some organisms uh, reducing, some oxidizing. But if you're going to be putting hydrogen on and off of carbon, the best metal for that is nickel. And so you have methanogens that run on nickel. Now, what's interesting is that if you look in rocks, the nickel disappears right about the time of the great oxidation event where oxygen first starts to fill the atmosphere. Why is that? Well, if you look at the temperature of the rocks, the temperature of the rocks drops at that time past a certain threshold. So it looks like the rocks got too cold. The nickel got sort of uh, precipitated out of solution and moved into the Earth's uh, solid phase at the very least and was not in the oceans anymore. So it disappeared from the oceans. Things that dependent on nickel to put hydrogen onto carbon would then have to retreat to an anaerobic environment. So this is a tree of life. This is a biological chemical tree of life, but it's really also a topiary of life in the sense that you have a branch of methanogens and then nickel, or technically the loss of nickel, but I couldn't really show that with a picture. Uh, the loss of nickel caused the, uh, the methanogens to be clipped out from aerobic environments. And so the tree of life is shaped by the environment and by these elemental availabilities. Now, this is a correlation to me of the chemical story with the scriptural. Both are very organized and ordered. This is a particular chemical kind of order, but I rejoice in it nonetheless. Now, of course, there's a challenge. If you extend this all the way back, then the question is, well, does this say that creation of life could have happened by just a chemical mechanism, ex machina? And what do we do with that if we find hints that it may be so? And here are some of the hints. Um, this, it's possible to form CNMPs, or two of the C CNMPs in RNA, uh, from simple materials through an admittedly somewhat complex, but not as complex as it could be, process. And these are activated to be able to join together in water to form long RNA chains. Uh, I find this interesting. I used to be, I used to be um, fearful of this kind of thing, but now I find it interesting and a, an interesting story to talk about and say, what if? What if there wasn't a, a transfer of information into the system, as, as some have put it? Uh, so, of course, the drawback to this narrative method is it takes time. I've already almost used up my time. I had an hour in February to talk about these and the chemical constraints on creation, which is a weeder lecture available on iTunes for anybody who wants to listen or watch it uh, with experiments. Um, and so I go through that. But what I really want to bring out here is that it's a, uh, it's a story that gives structure to my physical chemistry class. Basically what we do, and I noticed this early on, we use Atkins text for a survey of PCHEM. And the topics of Atkins actually go along roughly with the, topic, the order in which you need to explain things to students in order to explain this chemical story. You need to explain about entropy before you talk about how uh, entropy played a role in the universe cooling. Uh, you need to talk about phase diagrams and equilibrium before you talk about the liquid phase of oceans. And uh, I, I know that Atkins did not plan this, but I believe that it's because uh, there's something to talk about in each of those, and each of those are a window into truth. And so by retracing the historical sequence of creation, we teach physical chemistry this way. There's one rule that I like to follow. 
uh, I want to investigate each story independently before I start combining them. In a sense, chemicals need to be pure before you start mixing them together willy-nilly. You might get explosions otherwise, right? Um, one of the things at the end of the Weeder lecture, not the beginning, is I went back over many of the figures and slides that I did to tell the chemical story of creation. And I read the text of Genesis 1 over it while showing those images. Um, not changing either one, simply having one in the ears and one in the eyes. And uh, that's what I mean by juxtaposition. I mean uh, not changing or equating the stories, not forcing them together, but juxtaposing them. And uh, for uh, one of the things about stories is that they're, they're rather flexible. There's a Christopher Nolan movie uh, called Memento, where he made his great breakthrough. The thing about that movie, it's told entirely backwards. It would not be the same movie if it was told in order. So there's something to stories being told out of order that, um, that makes this juxtaposition work for me. Okay, so why do stories work? And they have these characteristics, and I just want, this is uh, where I'll conclude. Stories work because they have a beginning, they have a direction given by time, and actually scientifically we look back and we see a beginning at the beginning of, of universe with a beginning of even of time. Uh, stories are organized, whether into six days or into the periodic table of uh, solubilities, perhaps. Uh, they're limited. They can only tell you so much, and they only speak from a certain angle. They're also dramatic and musical. One of the things in the Weeder lecture is um, I brought out songs, and unfortunately, because they're all copyrighted, they had to be deleted from the video. So if there's little clicks in it, that's where it went. We had uh, musical things that um, we couldn't get the copyrights for. Uh, stories involve personalities, uh, whether elements or people. And most of all, as a teacher, they're effective teaching tools because they are the way that we think. And uh, I would like to know what you think about teaching with stories. 